Will you please stand for the reading of the gospel? The gospel lesson today is from Luke chapter 24, beginning with the 36th verse. Peace be with you. They were startled and terrified and thought they were seeing a ghost. He said to him, them, why are you frightened? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? Look at my hands and my feet. Say that it is I myself. Touch me and see. For a ghost does not have flesh and bones, as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. While in their joy they were disbelieving and still wondering, he said to them, Have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate in their presence. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said to them, Thus it is written, that the Messiah is to suffer and to rise from the dead on the third day, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins is to be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. This is the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks Thanks be to to God. God. Way back in the 20th century when I was your pastor, (laughs) our family lived next door in the house that is very properly now used as a place of mission to the entire community with recovery groups. Our daughter, on a given day, had just departed for her her day in the nearby school where John uh, Grissom, Grissom, Gerswood, who is seated in the pew this morning, was a very popular social studies teacher and she had an assignment. My commute to work was a two minute walk over to the pastor's study. About an hour after I had left on that crisp morning, the phone rang and Pat answered. The caller stated emphatically her name followed by this startling request. Mrs. Thompson, I'm a reporter with the Shelby Morning Star. We've just received word of your husband's death. (laughs) And I phone to receive your comments as you reflect upon his life's work, especially as he served us here in the community of Shelby. Pat began to puzzling look out the window. (laughs) She was trying to discern the sight of a vertical breathing animated head bobbing up and down over over a desk in the study. Seeing no evidence of my existence, but glancing at her watch at how long I had been gone, she extended a hand over a pile of of telephone directories and pulled out a curious book called The 
Western North Carolina Journal. And then she answered the journalist as only Pat Thompson could answer. I'm grateful for your concern, she said, but you need to call Mrs. Joe Thompson, who lives in Mooresville, North Carolina, and then she gives the address, then she gives the phone number, and then she says, we've been praying for George W., Joe, and the entire family. For you see, George W. was recently diagnosed with a brain tumor. We've been vitally concerned about him. Pat then proceeded to, to tell the reporter apparently more than she really wanted to know <laughs> about every single church that George had served through the years and his glorious work as director of missions for the conference. Now, I learned about this eerie conversation when I returned for the evening meal and just before I dashed off for another meeting here at, at First Methodist. Now, let me tell you the, the context for that call. Late every October and early November, Duke Divinity School hosts a three-day pastor school. World-renowned theologians, biblical scholars, sociologists of religion, and then prominent pa pastors in, in big city churches lectured and provided workshops for those who attended. And I'd been going to that for 12 straight years after my graduation from the school. I never missed pastor school. But you see, that year, First United Methodist Church, we had responded to the denomination's appeal. We were chosen as a pilot program. They were starting a new small group ministry that was biblically related, and you know the name of it because it's still here, Disciple Bible. We were the guinea pigs for trying out this new ministry here at First Church to see how it would go. And so I'd already made a pledge to participate in this first salvo of small group ministry in the United Methodist Church. And I'd pledged to attend every session of the 32-week curriculum. It would be the very first time in my active ministry that I would be absent from the lectures and the workshops down in Durham. I learned about the way in which the program of the, of the pastor school ended that year. The occasion for the final service just before people got to their parking lot and drove in their ribboned roads to different directions was November 1st. You get the context? And November the 1st is what? All Saints Day. They had a special service just as the people were departing. The names of the deceased graduates of Duke Divinity were being named that year, read with reverence and with the lighting of a candle upon the altar with each name. Now in those days, Duke Chapel had a, not only had that long nave, but they'd never corrected the echo chamber. And seated in the back pew near the entrance was a, were a classmate couple from West Virginia, Dave and Harriet Peters. They had already noted that I seemed not to be there. They had looked and looked and just never saw old George. And there they were, hoping that they would see me but didn't. 
they wanted, we always had a shared meal before we left, left town. Then they heard the alarming reading of the names reverberating all the way back to the end of that long nave. George, 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 Thompson, 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 Thompson. They heard the name. They were stunned. And filing out those gigantic doors just beside the chiseled forms of the Duke family named Saints, they were chiseled out in, in, in orderly fashion. Robert E. Lee, John Wesley, Martin Luther, in that order. <laughs> Dave ran into one of our classmates on the steps of Duke Chapel and he asked, you, you live somewhere here in North Carolina. Have you seen George Thompson during the year? And he said that he had been to a meeting and even though I was way across the room, he had seen me and he said, you know, he appeared tired and out of shape. <laughs> and he had a one word diagnosis, overweight. <laughs> now fast forward one year. That year, as well as every year I was a, a, a pastor, I led a disciple Bible group. But I had the wisdom that year to appoint someone for one of those, an absence that I would have. I'd come to 31, but not 32 sessions. I was gonna go to the Duke Pastor School. And so I drove that long distance, as you know, from Waynesville to Durham. Fighting against the interstate traffic, I arrived at the, at the Gray Lecture Hall late. The lecture was already in process as I slipped through the side door and entered that dimly lit, sometimes depressing lecture hall. Within 15 minutes, I was sleepy and bored. But then just to stay awake, I began to, to gaze over the whole gathered group, visually looking for some classmate or special friend I might know. And then my eyes locked with Harriet Peters her face displayed a certain consternation. Her complexion appeared colorless, alarmingly morose. The lecture continued interminably slow. I thought he would never end. But when the assembly finally was dismissed for a well-deserved coffee break, Dave and Harriet hastened over to where I was standing. She threw her arms around me and her tears were streaming down. They were wetting my cheeks. And I, I said, the only thing I could possibly think of saying, I said, Harriet, I'm glad to see you too. <laughs> During that coffee break and beyond, they told their story and we began to put together all the missing pieces. When I finally had a chance to respond to their lengthy explanation, I emphatically declared, Dave, the next time I die, the best you can do is send some flowers to Pat. <laughs> it's the season for laughing. Traditionally, the church comes together in the Eastertide to tell their favorite stories and jokes and laugh because we're laughing in the face of death. 
Easter morning was glorious. A great experience for me especially as we celebrated in this entire community. I joined with many of you uh, just two weeks ago at the sunrise service at Lake Junaluska where Susan Giles and Mitzi Johnsons, who is here this morning, made the story of the empty tomb become vivid and relevant. We were told that we are God's Easter people. We were told that every Sunday is a little Easter. But you and I know on a day of raining, two weeks after Easter, sunny Sunday, it's difficult to sustain Easter morning euphoria. That new dress that she bought appears to be a little old fashioned and out of, out of step because my goodness, all around the congregation, there are at least three or four other women who are wearing the same dress. When did those food stains arrive on my new Easter jacket, I asked Pat. Inevitably, the sun sets over all of our Easter's. Evening comes. The grass in the cemetery needs to be cut. Her husband who died 10 years ago, it seems just like yesterday, she says to me. Where is the living God upon the sunset of Easter? The four gospels, each one by one, carry a certain message theologically. And not all the messages are the same. That's why we have four Gospels with different emphases. Luke especially is teaching theology, a special theology. There are two stories. Easter amidst doubt. Easter with recurring grief. Easter mixed with shadows of hopelessness. We're likely to remember the first of those stories, of course, the one that is traditionally read the Sunday after Easter about the risen Lord walking along the way on the road to Emmaus and those men not even recognize him until he breaks bread with them at the table in Emmaus. And then they realize what has happened and they plead with him, stay with us because it's almost evening and the day is nearly spent. So for Luke, Easter sunset is a metaphor for much of our lives as Jesus' disciples. We're caught between promise and fulfillment, hope and the realization of our dreams, grief and comfort, future expectation and present reality. When Margaret McCleskey and I were growing up in Forest City, Nearly every Sunday we pass by a, uh, a print from a painting by Robert Zoon. It was, the painting was completed in the year 1877. The painting was entitled, The Way to Emmaus. And as a child and then as a teenager, as I would see that every Sunday and pass by the painting, I would always yearn to have the same experience that was recorded in Luke's gospel that those men of Emmaus had. Were not our hearts burning, burning within us while we were talking, while he was talking to us on the road? I wanted that experience. As with the men of Emmaus, as with John Wesley, whose heart was strangely warm at Aldersgate, I wanted that to happen to me. 
There was a second Easter sunset story, however. It's contained in today's reading. These men of Emmaus, as the shadows lengthened and the darkness fell, they just didn't walk back to Jerusalem. They ran back. They were so eager to tell the 11 who were gathered in that same upper room about what they'd experienced in, in their little hometown not far away from Jerusalem. And while they were relating their improbable story, suddenly the risen Lord appeared to them. He said to them softly, Peace be with you. These same words were recorded by John in a similar account. Therefore, a similar theology was being taught in John's gospel. All were terrified. Again, Jesus calmly said, Why are you frightened? Why do you doubt? Why do doubts arise in your hearts? Then the risen one said a curious, but I think crucial thing theologically. Look at my hands and my feet. See that it is I myself. Touch me and see. For a ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. Now keep in mind the context of Luke's writing. He was writing to the community that he had helped form uh, that was a, a community of more and more Greek-speaking Gentiles. Also in John's church, the same was happening. And many of these converts were over-spiritualizing Jesus. They needed to know the story. They believed that Jesus was divine. They had no trouble with that, but they had difficulty with the notion that Jesus might be human. He couldn't be like other men, they would say. For we Greeks all know, as they would say to each other, gods don't suffer, gods don't die. Jesus, who walked the roads of Galilee, merely was a soul substance. He didn't really die on the cross. He was not a body, but a soul inhabiting the body. This was the belief and the teaching of God's, of Greek-speaking Gnostics of that day. Luke rejected this notion emerging out of Greek philosophy. He did not embrace the Greek idea of the immortality of the soul. No authentic Jew believed in such a doctrine as the immortality of the soul. But Greek philosophy, by and large, taught that there was an indestructible element down within the human life, down within the body. A soul substance comes to us at birth and returns to God at death. That was a Greek teaching. Luke, as disclosed by this second story of Easter at sunset, to the contrary, taught that Jesus really died and was buried. He was human. To Luke's story, in Luke's story about Easter at sunset, the disciples actually touched and examined the nail prints in Jesus' hands and feet. And that is very important theologically. For the crucified God, who had suffered the most excruciating death imaginable, was raised from the dead in bodily form. Luke's narrative emphasizes 
the physicality of Jesus' presence. The risen Christ is indeed the Jesus who suffered and died. Without crucifixion, there is no resurrection. Easter is joined with Good Friday. Jesus' body matters. My body and your body matters too. So on Easter evening in Jerusalem, in that upper room, Jesus consequently commissioned his church. Each of us is to become the hands and the feet of Jesus. And we are wounded people. We're imperfect people. But he says, take your wounded form as my form greets you. And by his sacrifices and by our self-giving witness, the world is being changed. Our wounds are not signs of weakness. They're sources of redemption, reconciliation, and forgiveness because of the Jesus who came back in that risen form, showing his hands and his pierced feet. Look at your hands for just a moment. What do you see? You know, in all those Sherlock Holmes stories, Sherlock Holmes could shake a hand with someone, a complete stranger, and then walk away. In those several seconds that he was there, he, he'd walk over and talk to Watson, his companion, and tell everything you needed to know about that complete stranger, his vocation, his level of income, his lifestyle, his health, everything. Our hands tell us a lot. The disciples knew the hands and the feet of Jesus, and he knew theirs. Moreover, Luke's second story of Easter evening launches the church's mission. For Jesus said, as Becky has just read, thus it is written that the Messiah is to suffer and to rise from the dead on the third day, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins is to be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. And you are witnesses of these things. I look at this hand. 52 years ago, in a very special moment in sacred space, Pat placed this ring upon this finger. And this hand is symbolic of a covenant that was made and shared and brought meaning to my life. These hands were under the head of a little tiny girl that we named Stephanie as we would wash her at night or when I touched her head when she became older and was confirmed. These same hands in a few more weeks will be placed upon our one and only grandson. These hands have been in ministry. But also think of ministry in a hospital room, many a hospital room. In this case, the little child whose head I placed my hands upon was dying of cancer. He clutched onto his chest the thing that he loved so much, that little doll that was named Curious George. His pastor looking over him was Curious George. My God, my God, 
Why? The church asks that question, still trusting that there was a God, a risen Christ, with that little child as I held that child near the mother as we both watch him take his very last breath. Hands. I remember especially this hand on the forehead of a very old woman who was dying in the morning hours in Wahlberg where I was serving a church. And in that crowded room, there were her children, her grandchildren, her great-grandchildren. And just as the a ray of sunlight came from that east window of her room. We saw her take her last breath and everyone just instantaneously began singing softly the doxology. And it grew louder. And the risen Christ was with us. These hands have had a lot of experience. This left hand, it's the only one I can do this with, has written hundreds of sermons on pads of paper, sometimes smeared with tears over the scope of 50 years. In the light, I can see it really well. Age spots. <laughs> All the oil of Olay cannot wipe out these age spots. The disciples wept for joy when they touched the nail holes of his feet. He had washed their feet just a few nights before. He was now sending them out of the room to become foot washers. He didn't come back to them all cleaned up. There were blood stains upon his feet. The church in every era has been tempted to become a Gnostic church. To believe that the church is very spiritual, it's all cleaned up. Its mission is entirely spiritual. You just don't matter, you just don't get involved in material matters. You know, things like feeding the hungry or, or being an advocate for the powerless. Modern day Gnostics insist that the church never address those things that might have some political implications. After all, the real purpose of the church is to save souls so that when we die, we'll go to heaven. And when the church dabbles in things that are material, social issues, racial re reconciliation, gender inclusiveness, economic justice, when it does all that kind of stuff, it abandons its mission, they say, these Gnostics say. But Luke's gospel, through its stories of Jesus, shows his humanity in his parables, his teachings, and in these Easter sunset stories. The whole of the Gospel of Luke was written in defiance of Gnosticism. Even in Luke's birth narrative, Caesar Augustus, the most political name on the planet, plays only a bit role. He's put in his place because the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, has been born in Bethlehem. He became like us in order that we might become like him. He came to show us how to live, how to laugh, to eat, to drink, to suffer, and to die. He did not pull rank on any of us. So when we preach, as we indeed should preach, 
that Jesus came in order that we shall have eternal life and have a heavenly destination, we are preaching the truth, but only half, at best, half of the gospel. At Easter sunset, Jesus also sends us broken bodies into the world to transform the world. And moreover, he teaches us to pray every single day of our lives, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Where? On earth as it is in heaven. John Wesley had it right. The gospel is both personal and social. We cannot preach the gospel without feeding the poor. Salvation is the gift of grace whereby our lives are being saved and our world takes the form of the kingdom of God. If the town of Waynesville is not taking on some of the attributes of Jesus' heavenly kingdom, then we're not being sufficiently faithful to our mission as a church. In order to get to heaven, we must take a bit of heaven on earth with us when we die. On Monday, Thursday, we did a beautiful thing in this church. We washed each other's feet. Wasn't that a marvelous thing? When I was appointed to a church in Charlotte, the first thing I did on that first Sunday was to preach on John 13, the foot washing story. And I had only shared with the worship leaders what I was going to do next. And then my final sentence in that sermon was, if you want to know what my mission is as your new pastor, watch. I proceeded then to wash the feet of a child, a lay leader, and an older woman. I especially got to know that older woman. Her name was Catherine Ussery. She maintained nearly perfect attendance for decades, and in the last years of her attendance there, she came in with an oxygen tank in order to just get into the building. But every single Sunday, she was asking who's missing, who is in crisis, what are people going through in terms of illness or hospitalization, and then she would call or send a card or, or do things that, that only Catherine Usry could do in a loving way. She knew the names of nearly everybody, but she knew all the names of every one of the children. We loved her. She loved us. Those feet that I'd washed on that first Sunday were the feet of Jesus. Pat and I were sad when we learned of her death. I was the DS in, the, in Charlotte. The funeral service was conducted by Ken Carter, the one who had followed me, now bishop in Florida Conference. Now this sanctuary seats nearly 900 people. When we got there very early for the funeral and the place was filling up so much that we sat toward the back and then the balcony was filling. Catherine and her feet had taken last step of a glorious pilgrimage. Yes, we came to celebrate the good news that Catherine had entered into heaven. But equally important, we gathered as a grateful congregation of those whose lives had been transformed by her Christ-centered witness of self-giving love day by day. 
Likewise, our mission here at First United Methodist is to take our lives, our hands, our feet, scars and all, into a world eagerly awaiting to be transformed. Dave, Harriet, the next time I die, dance and sing. Celebrate what Christ has done through and even despite the life of your grateful colleague and classmate. Amen.